kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the vintage video team. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today, Carlos Moda invited everyone in our Discord to submit a custom episode they'd like to hear. And after pulling all the submissions, the winner was Mike Lamb, who asked us to review 2001 A Space Odyssey. Released April 4th, 1968, it was written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, based on a story by Clarke, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and released by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The same day this film was released, Martin Luther King was killed. Sad. <laughs> Way to start this one on an upper here. <laughs> After Dr. Strangelove, the germ of Kubrick's next film was a desire to tackle the subject of extraterrestrial life, inspired possibly by MGM's recent big-budget sci-fi fiction title, Forbidden Planet. When he connected with celebrated science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke, Kubrick expressed a desire to direct the first good science fiction film. <laughs> Clarke was living in Sri Lanka at the time, and going through his stories, he proposed a 1951 short entitled Sentinel of Eternity, and later just Sentinel, about a similar lunar discovery suggesting the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. Clarke's book and Kubrick's film were written largely simultaneously, with only a few surface-level changes between them. The title is obviously a reference to Homer's Odyssey, replacing the sea with the inky depths of space. I don't see a lot of correlations between the Odyssey and this movie, it's though. It's an adventure into the unknown. I, I mean, beyond that, you know, like, I don't think that they come across similar obstacles. Mm. Yes, there were no mermaids in this film. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. Although, <laughs> I was going to say, Bowman's wife is meticulously weaving a tapestry and unweaving it at night. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Clark has admitted that while both men shared credits on the screenplay, it would be fair to suggest that the novel was also co-written. Kubrick consulted astronomer Carl Sagan for advice on how to depict extraterrestrials, and Sagan advised against any humanoid form, since it was highly illogical that we would encounter another such species of all the possible combinations. When he eventually saw the film, he was pleased that Kubrick had taken his words to heart. He set up the deal with MGM specifically to take advantage of their ultra-wide Cinerama format after seeing it utilized so beautifully in How the West Was Won, inspiring Kubrick and Clark's nickname for the film, How the Solar System Was Won. Other reported working titles include Across the Sea of Stars, Universe, Tunnel to the Stars, Earth Escape, Jupiter Window, Farewell to Earth, and Planet Fall. I don't like any of those titles. I don't either. Jupiter Window? Oh, it's okay. For the aesthetic... Kubrick was obsessed with realism, with a sometimes overbearing attention to detail. He assembled a panel of experts to confirm every decision made sense scientifically with regard to the design of ships and the physics of space. The 1960 animated documentary Universe was a major influence on his research, and he even hired artists from the production as consultants on 2001. He reached out to the short's narrator, voice actor Douglas Rain, and cast him in the role of the film's central AI computer, HAL 9000. 
For a time, they'd considered a female voice, with the name Athena, after the goddess of wisdom, to go with the other details borrowed from ancient Greece. She would have been accompanied by a C-3PO-esque robot named Socrates. I'm glad they didn't do these. Yeah. Well, I feel like... It's better that it's just an eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad that there isn't, like, any sort of um, robot to accompany them, but... I feel like it would have been more prophetic to do a female voice because most, you know, most interactive computers now are female voices. That's true, yeah. Because you're used to being served by females. I exactly. Think. That you makes know, sense. we gotta keep we gotta keep it going. Yeah. But maybe it makes more sense for a long time a long time space mission that you just have just just dudes. Yeah, and also this there's only men allowed on ships. That's the thing, <laughs> yeah. though, is that I, in the '60s, <laughs> as much as Hal is subservient, he's also in charge, kind of. Oh right, so we maybe couldn't put a woman a in that spot. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, got it. Kubrick also found inspiration in a Cinerama film called *To the Moon and Beyond*, which was screened at the '64 World's Fair. During pre-production on 2001, he hired the film's production company, Graphics Film Corporation, to consult. They had previously produced films for several high-profile aerospace clients, including NASA and the U.S. Air Force. Their background artist, Douglas Trumbull, would prove indispensable to the production and airmailed Kubrick piles of scientifically accurate sketches of how space travel would work in the film. Ultimately, Trumbull was promoted to special effects supervisor on the film. For the most part, Kubrick was not interested in contesting with actor egos on set and preferred casting relative unknowns. To play Haywood Floyd, MGM pitched Henry Fonda, or George C. Scott, who had just starred in competing nuclear doomsday titles, Failsafe and Kubrick's own Dr. Strangelove, films whose source materials were so similar that the authors were pitted against each other in a plagiarism suit. Kubrick initially employed Alex North, who he had worked with on Spartacus to compose 2001's theme. Disappointingly for North, he didn't learn his music went completely unused until he was seated in the theater for the premiere. Oh no. A collection of North's recordings was produced by Jerry Goldsmith and did get an eventual limited soundtrack release, and some of it was actually reused in North's score for Dragon Slayer, which we covered earlier this season. Beside North, Kubrick also brought in Frank Cordell and Edwin Astley for composing work, but when Kubrick showed Astley the current edit with classical placeholder music for him to emulate, Astley said, why don't you just use that? So he did. Ordinarily, the production would at least re-record the classical works with a full orchestra, but in this case, Kubrick simply reused the existing recordings. I can't imagine how much money he spent on this movie. you got to find some way to make yeah. some savings. Cut some corners <laughs> somewhere. But that guy kind of talked himself out of a job. Yeah, I think it was fine, though. It was for the best. Unfortunately for Kubrick, one of these classical composers, Georgi Ligeti, was still around and recognized his work when he attended the Vienna premiere resulting in some kind of settlement for the composer. The ships featured in the film are either miniatures sliding past camera on a track or photographs attached to a glass plate and animated traditionally to move through the frame. In the occasional situation where we can see characters inside the craft, the image is being rear projected through the model's windows from a 16 millimeter projector. Honestly, I every single effect shot in this movie baffles me. They're all mm-hmm. pristine. It's yeah. so clean. I've never seen Because it's not compositing. It's it's not Well, it's in camera compositing. Yeah, it's it's in camera. But yeah. it, it it's not even really compositing because they're projecting the image into the model so it's there on set. Yeah. But it's just incredible the yeah. way this stuff looks. I mean, uh, we'll get to it later, but like all the stuff in the in the quote unquote Stargate right. sequence is just like how? No computers? No, Zero yeah, computers no, you did Yeah, this? exactly. It's, it, it has to have been computer generated. Yeah. 
Probably the most amazing set piece on display is the central centrifuge, which we see Frank Poole jogging the circumference of. A full 38-foot-tall Ferris wheel costs $750,000 to construct. Oh my god. For the most part, the jogging actor is at the bottom of the wheel, and whenever we see an actor seated on what looks like the ceiling of the room, they're actually strapped in upside mm-hmm. down until the wheel completes its rotation. Yeah, there, there was a scene where he was walking, and... Uh, the other uh, astronaut was like in in a cryo chamber, yeah. and he's rotating out of frame. And I could just picture like just as, slamming into the window. Yeah, as soon as he's out of frame, <laughs> he's just like, "Oh god!" Yeah, that's funny. Wow. I guess um, it's why you can't have any women on this ship because their long hair would be hanging down. It'd be too evident. I uh, <laughs> they actually like Bowman is wearing a wig the whole time because they shot for so long. Cooper was worried his hair would change lengths, so they were like, "You just need to wear a wig, and that'll be fine." But uh, occasionally when Gary Lockwood said he was upside down, he was supposed to be eating food at the table. Mm. <laughs> and he would, like, scoop something and it would just fall 60 <laughs> feet to the floor behind him. <laughs> and it's on this, like, pristine white ship, so they had to go clean it for, like, an hour. <laughs> Other weightless effects were accomplished with wire work and high-speed photography. 2001 A Space Odyssey became the first science fiction film to shoot on 65 millimeter. Initially intended for a 185 presentation, consultant Robert Gaffney talked Kubrick into a 220 aspect ratio, but if he'd gone a little wider to 225, it would have been the same aspect ratio as the monolith. How perfect would that have been? Oh. He could have had it fill frame for a shot, you know? No, you were saying that they used wire works. Now, was that for like the bodies floating in space? There's a sequence where one of the pods is grabbing hold of Frank Poole when he's mm-hmm. in space. And there's also the sequence where uh, Dave Bowman is falling toward camera as yeah. he's being blasted out of a pod. Honestly, both, both of those involve wires. Th- th- I've seen other movies that use wire works, right. but like this one is so convincing of the anti gravity. I think it it's has incredible a lot to do with the the movement of how these people are in the suits themselves. Like mm-hmm. I think that these guys must have been training so hard. Of what does it look like? What is, even when I can, even when there is gravity, to move right. as if there isn't gravity. Right. Well, and Kubrick is kind of like a magician where he figures out the physics of like, what would be a way to do this that would look real because it mostly is real? You know, it, he would figure out a way to to actually emulate the motion he wanted, whether it meant like, what if we build the set upside down? What if we have the set moving this way while another well, person yeah, moves a different way? Very, very, you know, Chris Nolan with Inception and stuff where we're actually going to spin entire rooms and, right. and drop yes. people in airplanes yeah. to film stuff. And it's like, but he didn't do that in any of the, I mean, he moved, he moved the room, right. obviously, but he didn't drop people in airplanes. Right, yeah. Special effects supervisor Trumbull has said that the dailies to final cut ratio was about 200 to 1. 17 minutes of the first publicly screened cut of the film were removed the same night and believed destroyed until they were discovered in a Kansas salt mine in 2010. Hmm. The year we made contact. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always putting stuff in those salt mines. Yeah. Universal uses them too. Is that good for the film? Yeah. It's a good way to preserve them, and it, it it's natural and it's away. free. It, yeah. it doesn't cost any upkeep because mm-hmm. they're underground and it's cold automatically. It's like the cheese preserve. Is the it's exactly they... like that. Yeah. For They use the cheese preserve for the cornier films. Well, <laughs> we have so much cheese. We're still stockpiling cheese. Did you know this? Are you talking about us specifically? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, us as in the U.S. Because like... we do have a lot, I feel like. But... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we do too. <laughs> Not an entire cavern. But I mean, you can never have too much cheese, really. There's so much cheese. It's good insulation, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
On a budget of $4.5 million, the price eventually swelled to $10 million, or $16 million by some accounts, and only brought in $2 million in its initial nine weeks release. With additional releases, though, the film's audience grew, and to date, its box office total amounts closer to $190 million. The film was nominated for four Oscars, Director, Writing for Clark and Kubrick, Art Direction, and won only Best Effects. Despite his role as lead designer of the film's visual effects, the Oscar was not awarded to Douglas Trumbull, but Stanley Kubrick himself, who was asked to submit a single nominee and didn't want to choose between effects leads Douglas Trumbull, Tom Howard, Con Pedersen, and Wally Beaver. So he put his own name in. So I <laughs> That'll get it. solve it. Yeah. Now they won't fight. Now they can hate me instead of each other. Oh, wise King Solomon. Yes. <laughs> but Trumbull has said since then that he's like, I don't really care that much because it's the only Oscar that Kubrick won in his life mm. and he should have had one, but yeah. he didn't do the visual effects. I did the visual effects. He directed them, but I designed them. But yeah, it would it would go on to be the only Oscar Kubrick ever won and he wasn't even there to accept it, sending in his place Diane Carroll and Burt Lancaster. 2001 also won a Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation. I assume he wasn't there either. Kubrick was quick to dismiss the idea of a sequel and, fearing the reuse of his intricately designed props and effects, as had happened earlier with the release of The Forbidden Planet, he ordered them destroyed after the production. A sequel did eventually come to be, with Kubrick's blessing. In 1984, Peter Hyams directed 2010 The Year We Make Contact, adapted from the second novel of Clark's four-part series, and we'll discuss the events of the sequel film mm -hmm. and the other two books at the end. E.G. Marshall, who we last saw as the president in Superman 2, has claimed he was offered the role of Dr. Haywood Floyd with a verbal contract that promised him star billing. When he was instead offered special billing under Cure Delay, he walked away demanding his $85,000 salary that he was promised. It's like, but you weren't, you're not in the movie. You quit the movie. So. Yeah. Pay or play? 2001 A Space Odyssey would be the last film about men going to the moon before we actually did go to the moon. And due to the film's surprisingly accurate visuals, Kubrick has repeatedly been accused of having designed and directed the actual moon landing. The theory is spelled out quite explicitly in the documentary Room 237 about the hidden meanings of Kubrick's The Shining. In 1977, Marvel's Jack Kirby adapted Clark's novel into a comic book, and it actually debuts the character of Machine Man, a robotic man who was granted consciousness by a monolith. Machine Man has since made the rounds, appearing in various Marvel properties, even at one point belonging to the Avengers team. Hmm. Adaptations of Clark's third and fourth novel have yet to happen, though in the late 90s, shortly after the success of Apollo 13, Tom Hanks acquired the rights and worked hard to get the film versions off the ground, but it never happened. The third novel is... is, is Not little, great. Yeah, I it, it's... It's very, it's a very strange concept. Although it because might... it's the first one that Hal's not in, so it's like I don't care. Yeah, um, but also it's about like destabilizing like the market. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like that's that's not as interesting of a sci-fi premise. Right. If those third and fourth movies do get made, though, I hope Denny Villeneuve does them. I think he's the obvious choice for if you're looking for someone who can do Kubrick stuff. It seems like he's the one doing that right now. The film opens with an overture over black, punctuated with the MGM logo, and then we dip to black again to the tune of Richard Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra, which has become synonymous with the film. Do you remember the last time we heard also Sprock Zarathustra? Or a sound alike of also Sprock Zarathustra? Oh. It was a while ago. It yeah. was 80. I think the subtitle literally said 2001 style music. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wasn't Caveman, was it? It was Caveman. Ah, I got it. Nice pull. <laughs> 
In the foreground, we see the dark side of the moon sinking to reveal the earth, and beyond that, the sun rises. The opening titles begin in a font called Gil Sands, and the zeros in the film's title card, 2001 A Space Odyssey, are actually O's from the font. Mm. So the film is technically titled 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you can argue with people as much as you'd like now. The image of a star and crescent moon arranged in a line with each other is a symbol in the Persian religion Zoroastrianism, which was itself born from the teachings of the prophet Zoroaster. Zoroaster, a.k.a. Zarathustra, would go on to appear as the protagonist of Friedrich Nietzsche's novel Thus Spoke Zarathustra, or also Sprach Zarathustra in his native tongue, which was in turn the inspiration for Richard Strauss's tone poem performed here as the score to the film. Wow. All connected. He thinks this stuff well, out so far ahead. But that, okay, so that's interesting, though, because at what point did he make that decision? Because he was going to replace the music. I feel like this was a song that he always had in mind for this moment. So this this wasn't going to be replaced. Right. But what's interesting sense. is that it's like, first of all, you have this ancient religion as an inspiration for right. one of the greatest writers of all time, Friedrich Nietzsche, to, who is an inspiration for one of the greatest composers of all time, Richard Strauss, who is a inspiration for one of the greatest filmmakers of all time stanley kubrick it's just neat how the same inspiration has bounced through like every format well and the music here is just so well suited for thematically expressing what is happening in terms yeah. of the, the the rising yeah it's the most epic the movie. Yeah. swelling in yeah. any soundtrack ever from here we dip to black and fade up at the dawn of man we see a lot of wide shots of a sunrise over a barren desolate landscape after a lot of empty rocky plains, we start to see bones in the desert, and then we find a tribe of humanoid prehistoric ape creatures surrounded by a small herd of tapers. No, not capers. <laughs> tapers. This whole sequence was actually shot last. All the Australopithecine actors were especially thin mimes and dancers, except for a pair of baby chimpanzees. Kubrick wanted to avoid the resemblance to bulky gorilla costumes of the past. The masks they're wearing actually have hinged jaws fitted to individual molds of each actor's face, and the facial hairs were added one strand at a time. The lips were controlled remotely with a device the actors operated with their tongues. That's insane. <laughs> How complicated is that? For 30-some for actors in this scene, it's like 20 or 30 people. That's crazy. Dressed as ace for the shot, and every single one of them How got much, fitted for a mask. How much did he spend on this whole movie? Between 10 and 16 million. That's, but in 1968, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I, I just want to go through like the casting process. Tie a knot in this cherry stem yeah, exactly. <laughs> to see if you can work this mess. Well, he basically found a guy who he was really happy with and then went and hired that guy's entire mime troupe. Mm. Honestly, the only thing that I don't like, and they, may, maybe, they probably didn't have the technology to do this properly, um, is the eyes. Because I think we see too much whites of the eyes here. I think I think that's the only part of the actors that you're actually seeing. Yeah, exactly. From exactly. The nose but up. but what I'm saying is like I think if we did this now, it they would have they would contact lenses that cover more of the whites of the that eyes sense, because yeah. it would look more animal-like. Yeah. Yeah. For now, these apes are seen subsisting off the small scraps of plants they can find in the dirt. They are herbivores. The apes and tapers seem to fight over what little vegetation they can find. One day, a leopard leaps down from a cliff to attack one of the apes. Sometime later, the ape tribe... Wait, wait, wait. wait. You're just going to pass over that? It's a guy getting attacked by a leopard. Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying. It yeah. looks like it is. It is. It, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't build a robot for this one shot. No, no, no. Nope. They actually just had somebody being attacked. That's terrifying. Yeah. Beware the leopard. Yeah. 
Sometime later, the ape tribe is beset upon by a second indistinguishable tribe. They all start freaking out because they can see the difference. One tribe gets loud enough that they scare the other one away from the waterhole, and then surround the resource to protect it. The sun sets and we see a leopard lying in the dark with a fallen zebra. Its eyes glow. The leopards, not the zebras. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> the ape tribe settle in the undercliff of a small outcropping of rock. Most of them are humans in costume, but we do occasionally get inserts of ape actors holding real baby chimps. Do you guys recall the last time we have allegedly seen these costumes used? Um, I'm going to say History of the World. No, but there was obviously a very yeah. clear 2001 parody in that film. Think of people who might have worn apish costumes. To Planet portray, of the Apes. <laughs> to portray prehistoric man. Caveman. <laughs> Any other caveman movies we've watched? Um, Trog? Trog. <laughs> the next morning, one ape awakens first and seems confused by something. A chorus of voices rise in the background and we back out wide to show a monolith in the center of their territory. How do you compose something like this? Yeah, I don't know. But like, it's it is amazing. overlapping chanting voices and i don't know why it's so scary but it is it's mm. terrifying i i have to okay so this i think this is really interesting because obviously this movie has incredible visual landscapes but the audioscapes that are crafted right. here i think are equally fascinating um and you know it's such a long movie i did i, I watched it in, in pieces and on so many occasions the kids came in because of the audio because they were, like, what is happening they were taken so aback by the sounds. This was one of those moments, um, the screeching of the, 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 the apes, the monkeys, um, the alarms that happened in the ships, yeah. the yeah. beeping of the radar, the breathing in space. Right. Like these are all moments that the kids are like, what is, what is that? Is that you? Is that the movie? You know, it's just yeah. like they had to come in because it was so off-putting. <laughs> the monolith is pitch black. Its dimensions are one by four by nine feet, standing like a tombstone. The apes start by screaming at it, but eventually move closer to touch it, still frightened by its very presence. It's, it's important to note that the proportions of one by four by nine are consistent with all the monoliths despite their sizes. Right. And that's one squared by two squared by three squared. Right. One, four, nine. Sometime later, we see an ape standing amongst the bones of a taper, and he seems to have a vision of the monolith. Uh, sorry, I want to talk about yeah. the monolith more. Um, it's painted in such a way that it doesn't look like it's really there. It looks yeah. like it's animated into or, the frame. Yeah, it, it almost looks like a map painting in the shot, but it's yeah, there. It's there, and, and it's not until they touch it that you realize that it is. Cause yeah. Because it, it looks like – it looks fake. Like yeah. when, you, when you see it, it's like that looks like a fake object, but it's just painted so perfectly flat that no no light comes off of it. But it's also just so – terrifying that it's so unexplainable that it's something so simple that still you could wake up and be like what the fuck is that i am horrified that that is here because i don't understand what that is or how that could possibly exist yet or be here how who put it here when did it show up didn't hear it right know, just in the book they did sometime later we see an ape standing amongst the bones of a taper and he seems to have a vision of the monolith it inspires him to grab a hold of a bone from the skeletal pile and use it as a simple tool also, Sprock Zarathustra returns to the track as the ape lifts a sturdy bone and flips it over in his hands a few times before using it to smash the other bones and skull sitting around him. His swings get more and more violent until he crushes the skull and we match cut two tapers being killed in the same way. 
In the next shot, we see an ape carrying a bone stick and eating the flesh of a small animal in his hands. They have officially transitioned to a carnivorous, or at least omnivorous, species. Every single one of them is now holding a big handful of animal flesh and chewing on it. The sun sets again, and the monolith is gone, though it is rediscovered here in the events of the fourth novel, 3001, The Final Odyssey. So I assume that we're to understand that the monolith has bestowed upon them the knowledge yes. to use tools, Correct. and their ability to hunt and eat meat now triggers their evolution into humans. It chose them for ascension to the next level of right. mm -hmm. of uh, species evolution. Because we're going to see in the next scene that it, it did more than enhance their intelligence. Actually, it, it altered their physical bodies. Right. The next day, there's another face-off at the waterhole between the two tribes of apes, but this time the home team has come armed with bones. An unarmed ape charges one with a bone, and he strikes it in the head with his weapon. Suddenly, the entire armed ape tribe are bashing the dead ape with their own weapons until the unarmed tribe retreat back to the wilderness. So it's very important because they are now walking upright. Right. So all of the bone-carrying apes are now walking up, up more upright while the other apes are still kind of hunkered down. It's, it's, they're, they're becoming more, more human. Do you recall the last time we saw this take place? Caveman. Caveman, yeah. But this would be... straightening everybody's back out. Yeah. This would be like the, the, the evolutionary branch where, where some remained the same here yes. and the rest evolved. Yeah. The leader of the apes with bones... I believe his name is Moonwatcher? Yes. In the, in the novel. They don't specify a name, obviously, right. in the film. Throws his weapon into the air to celebrate. And as we follow it into the sky with the camera, it suddenly match cuts millions of years into the future to an armed weapon satellite floating through space. A much more advanced weapon that this tribe could never have conceived of. Kubrick's space photography is so insanely accurate to footage we've seen from beyond Earth's atmosphere that I honestly don't blame people for thinking that he faked the moon landing. <laughs> because just this shot alone, the first shot from space with satellites floating by and the Earth's atmosphere from above, it's like, that could be footage that you bought from NASA for this. I don't know. But, but it couldn't be right now. But we didn't have that footage we didn't at the have time. It yet. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to explain that to him. Like, he did this, and it's really really accurate to what it actually ended up looking like. Yeah. And you don't understand that we didn't actually know this when he made that. Yeah. Because the vacuum of space is inherently silent, the only sound we hear is Johann Strauss's Danube Waltz. Johann is of no relation to Richard Strauss, who composed the earlier music. 2001 became the first film to give space the accurate silent treatment. Do you guys recall the last time we heard the Danube Waltz? Uh, were people dancing to it? They were. Uh, is it Australian? No. no. Is it Heaven's Gate? We did hear it in Heaven's Gate at the yeah. dance at Harvard for yeah. graduation. Okay. But we've heard it since then. Oh. Were they dancing to it since then? Yes. They were dancing to it again. Mm. Is it a period piece? I think it's the the late mid to late seventies. <gasps> oh. Uh da -da 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 -da. was it a disco version of it? Nope. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that's Beethoven. But yeah. <laughs> I thought it might have been in there. <laughs> yeah. Nazis were dancing. Nazis were dancing. Nazis were dancing in the 70s? Was it the Blues Brothers? No. no. Where else would Nazis have gone after World War II? Brazil? The boys from Brazil? That's right. I think we also heard it on the radio in Savage Harvest, but I wasn't totally sure on that. And technically, this song was used by Kubrick once before in Paths of Glory. The camera floats toward a spinning space station, and then we see a Pan American flight leaving Earth. Obviously, by 2001, Pan American did not exist as an airline anymore. Inside the craft, we can see one passenger asleep, but strapped in, in zero gravity. 
A pen is floating around the cabin with him, and a flight attendant steps out from the front of the craft wearing grip shoes, which allow her to move down the aisle and collect the floating pen. The pen is actually affixed with newly invented double-sided tape to a glass sheet spinning in the foreground so that there was no wire visible. Oh, it looked so freaking good. It's I awesome. could not figure this one yeah. out. It was so... It's rotating so that it's not moving in a straight up and down motion. It's so good. Yeah. She tucks it into the passenger's pocket and returns to the front of the plane. The craft is slowly aligning itself with the opening in the spinning space station beyond and eventually touches down inside. We get a shot from the cockpit of the plane to show the Pan American flight and space station are spinning so perfectly in sync that they don't seem to move at all in relation to each other. The only cue they're spinning is the sea of stars rotating behind them. Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, physics that are incorrect with this because okay. in order to maintain a cons- like a rotation like that, the first start getting this, getting yourself starting to rotate, you know, like everyone in the ship would be like thrown to one side as they're starting the rotation. Well, the space station is always rotating. No, no, no. But I mean, the the, the Pan American yeah. flight is not rotating. In order to rotate, it has to go into a spin, which, right? Which yes. everyone would feel the g forces of that spin until it got to the the right. The but depending on the speed that you're getting into the rotation, then you would feel less and less g. No, of course, yeah. yeah. But th- just that. Getting into that one G of rotation yeah. is, is quite a bit. Yeah. Well, maybe they just start as soon as they're in zero G, they start to begin the rotation until mm. they get to where they're going. The passenger exits the plane and moves through documentation services on the space station. He is instructed by a woman on a video screen to recite his destination, nationality, and name. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Floyd is led through the empty space station by a representative of the security team. The furniture inside is very 60s mod style, bright pink chairs with very rounded edges. This particular chair is called a gin chair, designed by Olivier Morgue, and they're available for sale to this day, but cost in excess of $3,000 each. (laughs) I want one, though. A sign in the background indicates that there is a Hilton Hotel here on the station. There's also a Howard Johnson, (laughs) which is like, that's the only brand that still exists from this whole movie, like Hilton and Howard Johnson's, but everything else is gone. He steps into a Bell phone booth, which also got broken up. He calls home and his daughter shows up on a video screen. This is actually Vivian Kubrick, who shot the behind the scenes footage we discussed in our review of The Shining. The girl says mom's not home and the babysitter is in the bathroom. She asks Dad if he'll come to her birthday party, but Floyd reminds her that he's away on business. He asks the little girl what she'd like as a gift, and she asks for a bush baby. Unclear if she means the actual species or if this is some kind of future toy, but I guess it's not a future toy anymore because this takes place 22 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) I'm pretty sure she was probably talking about, because he seems so uncertain about it. He's like, well, we'll have to see about that. Yeah. Floyd is led to a group of Russian scientist acquaintances on board the same space station. He tells them he's headed to Clavius, and they seem surprised. They ask if he can explain some of the weirdnesses alleged in the region, and Floyd seems totally unaware of what they mean. They mention that no one has spoken with the team at Clavius for 10 days now. Floyd feigns or experiences surprise. The Clavius site also recently refused an emergency landing, which is way against protocol and would have required a much more urgent emergency to explain. Luckily, the diverted craft landed safely elsewhere. Lastly, Floyd's friends allege that a terrible outbreak of unknown origin is affecting the area. Sorry, Dr. Smith's love, but uh, I'm really not at liberty to discuss this. He tells them he must be going and leaves. We get more space footage with the Danube Waltz as another rounder shuttle craft leaves the station headed for a landing site on the moon. A flight attendant brings food to their only passenger and finds him asleep again. 
The other flight attendant is watching sumo wrestling on the television in the spaceship. One of the flight attendants carries a food tray back to the galley and presses buttons to retrieve more food. She then uses her grip shoes to walk in a circular motion around the circumference of the hallway so that by the end of the scene she's fully upside down to our perspective. She steps through another doorway to deliver these dinners to the pilot and co-pilot and sits with them in the cockpit which glows bright red. The captain moves below deck to speak with their only passenger for a bit and then we cut to Floyd reading the instructions for the shuttle's zero gravity toilet. <laughs> Very important. I, <laughs> this made me laugh pretty hard because I wish I could read them. I'm sure there's... there. You can find them you online. You can find them yeah, somewhere. the whole text of it. They're so long. Yeah. There's like 10 steps and they're each a paragraph long. I wanted him to just like <laughs> brush sweat off of his forehead. Yeah. Like, oh, oh God, God, I do not want to float my shit around this thing. Yeah, he, he does look concerned. Yeah. Like, like he's just like, okay, come on. It's like the seashells. I don't know how to use this. I should have started reading when I got here. The craft touches down on the surface of Clavius, the second largest crater on the light side of the moon. We watch from the nearby ridge of a mountain range as several astronauts explore it. The platform the craft lands on rides an elevator down under the ground, and we cut to a briefing around a horseshoe-shaped desk. Floyd is seated at the center of it, and a photographer takes pictures of the men chatting inaudibly. Dr. Halverson takes the podium at the front of the room and introduces their guest of honor, Haywood Floyd. He mentions a recent discovery which may revolutionize science as they know it. He thanks everyone for going along with the rather inconvenient cover story of an outbreak to keep the story sufficiently secret. He apologizes for any undue stress it may cause their loved ones planet side. I found this cover story personally embarrassing myself. However, I accept the need for absolute secrecy in this. And I hope you will too. Yeah, because he's not going, he can't just leave. Right. Now that he's here, he has to. He has to stay here in quarantine. Yeah. Floyd takes his seat again as the brief continues, but we skip that part to see the lunar craft carry Floyd and other scientists to the site being investigated. They break out some sandwiches on board and look over the satellite photography of the Tycho Magnetic Anomaly, or TMA-1. The discovery has an unexpectedly powerful magnetic field, and they had to dig to find the source. What's more, the evidence seems pretty conclusive that it hasn't been covered up by natural erosion or other forces. It seems to have been deliberately buried. Deliberately buried. Their teams have determined that the time of the burial was around four million years ago. The lunar craft approaches a small dig site beside a landing pad. As a team of six scientists in spacesuits approach the pit, we get a reprise of the chorus of voices from the monolith seen earlier in the Dawn of Man. They walk down the ramp into the pit to investigate up close. The voices get louder and more discordant as they approach. One man takes photographs and Floyd reaches out to touch the surface of the thing with his glove. The team line up for a group photo with the monolith when a loud buzzing ring sounds and the men all grab their helmets in pain. We get another low angle shot up the height of the monolith at an oncoming eclipse. I do like um, how we keep sort of the consistency of how it how the monolith is being touched throughout the film. So the way the apes touch it, the mm -hmm. way it's touched here, and the way Dave tries to touch it yeah. at the end. You know, their their hands are all very similarly uh you know caressing it or and they're all being to. triggered by eclipses to all these contact yeah. points um, i'm not sure what kind of an eclipse you would call this from the perspective of earth it would be a lunar eclipse because the shadow of earth is falling over the moon mm. but from here it looks like a solar eclipse because the earth is blocking out the sun so which one is it abe better keep your story straight <laughs> 
Now we jump 18 months into the future for a title card that reads Jupiter Mission. A long spacecraft called Discovery One with a ball at one end, satellite dishes in the middle, and thrusters at the end floats into view. Inside the ship we see Gary Lockwood as Dr. Frank Poole jogging in a vertical loop around the circumference of the ship. Along the way he passes unconscious passengers in stasis chambers, waiting out the long ride to Jupiter. Next we see a red light in the center of a camera lens watching Cure Delay as Dave Bowman moving about the ship. Now, uh, this is where I have some questions about how this is arranged. To me, when I first watched this a long time ago, what yeah. I assumed was that this was the only room that had gravity because this was because like it rotates because it was yeah. a spinning ring. Yeah. But we'll see that the the pod bay has gravity. It's true. And so that does that you know, and that's obviously it's not rotating. It's yeah. not clearly not yeah, rotating. Well, maybe maybe that's Maybe they have the grip shoes on that the flight attendants had in mm. that room. Because I, I don't think they spend enough time in that room for us to really see how the gravity works there. Right. Uh, you know, getting spoiled off watching uh, The Expanse and, like, all the great they detail. explain how all the, working. Yeah, every, every, all, all, all the – because almost all times uh, – there's so much times where they're in zero-G, but everyone has their hair tied so tight – like that's like ne- never anything they have to worry about on the yeah. show as far as that's effects. how you avoid visual effects costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's great. It's like we could it, pay eighteen thousand dollars for hair fixes, or we could put on this scrunchie. Yeah, no, I think I think it's brilliant because it it makes sense on the screen and it, it makes and, sense. and and practicality yeah. of working in zero g. Yeah, we cut to another circular room where the floor wraps around the entire outside of it. We see Dr. Poole appearing to sit upside down on the ceiling at a booth while Bowman climbs down a ladder in the foreground to the floor and then he walks around the floor to match his upside down friend. It appears that a centrifugal force is holding these men to the outside surface unless it's the work of some other zero-g technology. Poole is enjoying a space meal and watching a broadcast of a program called The World Tonight on a tablet in front of him. The comparison to Apple's iPad device is impossible to avoid, and when Samsung developed a subsequent similar product, they were sued by Apple and presented this scene as proof that the concept predated Apple's execution of it. Wait, say that again? Apple was like, you can't make tablets, we invented tablets, and they're like, you didn't invent tablets during this movie from the 60s. They lost lost anyway. (laughs) Hell, they were in TNG. Yeah. Yeah. As the show starts, we see it is actually a news story on their mission, and the anchorman provides some exposition for us. Good evening. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery 1 left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. This marked the first manned attempt to reach this distant planet. Earlier this afternoon, the World Tonight recorded an interview with the crew of Discovery at a distance of 80 million miles from Earth. It took seven minutes for our words to reach the giant spacecraft, but this time delay has been edited from this recording. It sounds like there are only two conscious human crew members, Poole and Bowman, as well as a top-of-the-line HAL 9000 computer system. The other three crew members, Doctors Hunter, Kimball, and Kaminsky, are making the trip in a state of hibernation. Top of the line. He came online in 1992. I know, it's pretty old. <laughs> He's a nine-year-old, nine-year-old computer. computer. Well, maybe they got to a point where they were like, there's no improvement. We, it, we did it. The year is not 2001. We, we established it's 2001. Right, exactly. <laughs> 2001. Two, sorry, 2001. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like Mega Man in the year 2000X. Yeah. In these chambers, the sleeping crew are kept at three degrees centigrade. They breathe once a minute and their hearts beat thrice a minute. They do not dream. So that means they're just blinking to their destination, really, mm. if they're not dreaming. Blipping. Blipping, if you will. The anchorman even takes the time to interview Hal. Good afternoon, Hal. How's everything going? Good afternoon, Mr. Amer. Everything is going extremely well. 
We learned from HAL's boasting that no HAL 9000 has ever made a single mistake in the history of their use. The host asks Bowman if he thinks HAL has real emotions, and Dave suspects it would be impossible to determine. Later we see Dr. Poole sunbathing under a lamp when HAL interrupts him to announce a video call from home. Happy birthday, dear Frank. Happy birthday to you. See you next Wednesday. As we've mentioned before on the show, this is where John Landis got the title of his fictional movie within a movie, See You Next Wednesday, which makes regular appearances throughout his filmography. After the call, Hal throws his own happy birthday onto the pile. Happy birthday, Frank. I didn't get you anything. Oh, I'll get you something. I got an <laughs> idea. We cut away to Poole losing a game of chess to Hal. Poole and Hal are actually playing a reenactment of a historical game, Roche vs. Schlag from 1910. Hal claims victory, though perhaps prematurely? I'm sorry, Frank. I think you missed it. Turns out, Hal is incorrect, or lying, in his assessment that he has a checkmate within two moves. Poole actually has a chance at victory still. Knowing Kubrick, this is likely intentional foreshadowing of Hal's future dysfunction. Then we see Bowman doing sketches of sleeping scientists. Hal is complimentary of his work and is able to identify the scientists from the drawing. Then we get our first hint of trouble from Hal. He asks if Bowman has any unspoken apprehension regarding their mission and expresses his own suspicion, even addressing certain rumors floating around before they set sail for Jupiter. Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Hal's suspicions are interrupted with a reading of equipment failure in the ship's AE-35 unit, which is the satellite dish collection in the center of the ship. This is how they communicate with Earth. <laughs> it's the Illudium Q-42 explosive space modulator. <laughs> what is that from? <laughs> I may have gotten the numbers messed up, but... The Illudium Q-36 explosive space modulator. Um, that's Marvin the Martian's... Oh, okay. The thing that he needs for his death ray, and it always ends up just being a stick of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Hal predicts the unit will fail within 72 hours, but it will be fully operational until it fails. Bowman and Poole send Hal's diagnostics back to Mission Control, who approve the operation to replace the AE-35 unit. Dave Bowman carries the replacement unit to one of the pods at the front of the ship. Each of these three pods are big spheres with robotic claw hands for gripping. He pilots the pod around the ship to the AE-35, and for the entire task, all we can hear is pressurized air and Dave's breathing. He parks so far away. Like, he's like, he's like, Oh, man, you're going to dive out of there and you're going to miss it. Look at Richard, the expert pod captain over here. He knows I, exactly how far away things are without driving a vehicle. I had the exact same thought, though, because he like launches himself through space to fix this thing. Yeah. And I'm like, that seems like a bad plan. Well, maybe it would be much worse if he collided with their giant bone ship. <laughs> you broke the spine. The box that Dave brings out attaches magnetically to the outside of the ship while he pries loose the faulty unit. I love that they added that because he needs to be able to put it down. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously no gravity, so he sets it down, but it sticks. But in order to make sure that it didn't be like, ah, you made a mistake, they literally label it like mm -hmm. mag hold. Yeah. <laughs> Frank Poole supervises from inside the ship. We cut right to Dave and Frank performing their own diagnostics and finding no fault in the equipment. Uh, the, why would you do this? It's like a part broke. Why would you double check it? Yeah, a part broke. You replaced it. End of story. Throw it in the trash and let's move on. Well, what if it's reparable? And they're like, well, let's figure out what went wrong, fix it so that if we need another replacement, we have it. But my question is actually, why did Hal want them to do this? Right now, he's just malfunctioning. Oh, okay. 
That's just a straight malfunction. This isn't a part of a plan. I thought this was plotting and he needed to understand what it looks like for them to go on a mission outside the ship for a replacement part. My interpretation of this moment is that he's having some issues and he's starting to crack a little bit. Mm. See, I thought he wanted a communications interruption. Well, I mean, if he did, it was pointless because mm. they had plenty of time to replace it and they were already back in communication. Yeah, he doesn't with do Command. anything right. based on this. So it just I didn't really understand what prompted this because I thought I thought it was intentional. Right. He suggests to return the AE-35 to its place and let it fail on its own, at which point it will be easier to tell what went wrong. Mission Control agrees with Hal, but offers a disturbing warning. We should advise you, however, that our preliminary findings indicate that your onboard 9000 computer is in error predicting the fault. I say again, in error predicting the fault. And he has to emphasize that point because this has never happened before. They're only comfortable announcing this conclusion after running the same diagnostics through a pair of HAL 9000s on Earth. They have two identical computers that did not sense any issue with this device. As soon as Mission Control hangs up, Hal is already launching into excuses for his apparently flawed performance, deferring the blame. How would you account for this discrepancy between you and the Twin 9000? Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. This sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. I like that he uses the phrase cropped up. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very a very folksy yeah. for yeah. a computer. Hal confirms for Frank that literally no mistake has ever been made, and Dave pretends everything is fine, but asks Frank to meet him in one of the pods to check a transmitter issue. They move back to the pod bay and climb into the center pod, while inside they ask Hal to rotate the pod 180 degrees. When it's rotated, Dave flips off all the microphones and asks Hal to turn it back, but Hal can't hear him, so it doesn't move. The men admit to each other in private that HAL 9000 is freaking them out. Despite it all, they tend to agree with HAL about returning the supposedly faulty unit. And assuming it doesn't fail, they have a much bigger problem of having a faulty computer program supervising all their life support systems. They conclude together that they would be forced to disconnect HAL and run things manually. Bowman has a disturbing worry that, since a 9000 series has never actually been shot off, that HAL might actually have an instinct of self-preservation and prevent them from doing so. While they talk, they occasionally look through the pod window at Hal's glowing red eye on the dashboard across the pod bay. In Hal's POV, we see that he's actually reading their lips to follow the conversation in the pod fluently. I feel like, you know, because this computer was designed to be able to react to human emotions, like they talk about that earlier. Yeah. Even if I wasn't thinking about the fact that he could potentially read lips. He could read their faces. They, they're making a lot of, like, worried faces in yeah. this pod. I feel like I would have turned it away from him and then given the command, like, oh, can you hear me? And when he couldn't. Yeah. I think the only reason speak. that they pointed it at him is if they couldn't regain contact with him, then they wouldn't have a way to open the door because it would the door would have been facing the wrong way. Arthur C. Clarke was particularly bothered by the scene because he presumed lip reading, especially of people talking in profile, was beyond the abilities of even the most advanced technology, but he's admitted since that Kubrick was right and it's entirely possible. We cut to black for intermission. So that's like a great moment for people to go out and smoke their cigarettes in the break because you're like, fuck, the computer yeah. knows <laughs> that they're going to try and kill it. What the hell is going to happen now? This is this is crazy. Um, uh, I wanted to mention before, too, that... When Hal is like seeing how he's kind of worried about the mission, yeah, and how how do you feel about the mission? Like, what are you is like? And uh, Bowman goes, "Are you working up my personality report?" And Hal's like, 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm working up your personality. Oh, that's, that's lovely, yes. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Over the black of the intermission, we get another clip of the overture. When we cut back, Poole is in a pod reinstalling the A35 while Bowman supervises from inside Discovery 1. For the last leg of the install, Poole has to eject himself toward the ship outside the pod, but the empty pod spins to life and approaches Poole, and we get a few jump cuts of it closing in on him before we see Bowman's perspective from inside the ship and Poole is sent hurtling into the blackness of space away from them. It's the most horrifying shot in the whole movie because mm -hmm. you're like, fuck, that's the worst way to die. That is the worst one. We got Poole and Pod. Pod's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, but also, like, he, Hal sends, like, the pod hurtling. Like, right. As if, After like, yeah, like yeah, how, how does that out. happen? Does, yeah. does he just, like, Well, he can control launch it, so he just thrusters? gassed it and spun it. Well, okay. I, yeah, I, I think that, that he did that to make it look like, oh, something went wrong. Oh, no, there. how terrible. <laughs> the, 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 the pod went crazy. Whoopsies. Told you you can't trust those pods. But it's such a great, like, the two shots together of, of pool in space, the discovery and and the pod spinning out of control and yeah. getting smaller and smaller. It's like, yeah. how did they put all those things together? And how did that pod start huge and get small? Yeah. Poole's air hose seems separated from his backpack, so he is likely already suffocating or worse. This is all happening silently in space. The pod also rolls out to infinity ahead of him and Dave has to stage a rescue. He converses with Hal as though he doesn't immediately suspect the computer and Hal feigns complete ignorance of what has happened. Dave gets in a pod and races out to his friend in the stars. Poole is no longer moving and likely already dead. He manages to grasp his friend with the arms of the pod and then spins to return to the ship, but along the way we see blinking red lights in the freshly unmanned ship announcing computer malfunctions. The life support systems for the crew in stasis are failing and all their vitals are crashing simultaneously until a final indicator light reads, life functions terminated for all three of them. And again, this is intentional. Right. right, yes. Here, okay. here he's deciding they're going to shut me down. There's no way they're as smart as me. They cannot run this computer. I need to take control of everything. Right. I'm the only person who can complete this mission. I feel like Dave should know better than to just rush out and get his friend. Like, his friend's yeah. already dead. I think he doesn't know that for a fact. If the air hose hadn't been disconnected, which he wouldn't be able to tell from this view, then Frank is alive oh, and just floating like away from the ship. Oh, is it like self-contained? It wasn't connected to the ship. So, Correct. Okay, yeah. so he mm -hmm. doesn't know that that was cut. So he yeah. thinks, you know, we got he thinks that gravity his friend situation is, is out fine. here and he's just floating yeah. off. Okay. He thinks he's okay until he runs out of air, which could yeah. be hours. Okay. From outside, the stasis chambers now seem to resemble sarcophagi. When Dave gets back to the pod bay, Hal refuses to let him in, and we get probably the most famous line of the film. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Dave sits in the pod, cradling Poole's corpse in its arms, but Hal won't let him in. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. You can hear the panic rising in his voice, but he's still trying to mask it for his chats with the computer. If Hal has the ability to control these pods, you might expect him to just blast Bowman into space, but the novel explains that Frank had expressly given Hal control of the pod in case he needed assistance during his EVA. Hmm. Dave announces that he will use the emergency airlock to get back inside without Hal's help, and then Hal points out that in his haste, he didn't bring a helmet. Ejecting from the pod without a sealed suit would mean almost certain death. I believe the chess game we saw earlier was foreshadowing this moment, and shows the difference between Frank and Dave. Frank believed Hal when he told him victory was hopeless, but Dave will not accept defeat, 
and so operates outside of what Hal believes possible. Hal tells him there's no point in further conversation and stops responding. Dave opens up the emergency airlock with the pod's arms and lines up the door with the ejection port at the back of the pod. With no other option, he blasts himself into the vacuum of space down the length of the airlock, and while being tossed violently through the tube, he manages to yank shut the hatch and enter the ship. How did they shoot this? This pod, the, the escape... Is it upright? It's and upright. he's dropping yeah. down? So but then he bounces back. He bounces back up. So what happened? They have a line connected to Dave Bowman, uh, the actor Cure Delay. He is literally trusting the production with his life because what he does is he dives out head first, like however many feet, like 12 to 15 feet down, and they have a stunt guy with a rope that's tied to him, and then it's tied through a loop to a stuntman who is releasing the rope. He literally just opened his hand and let the rope go so that he could fall all the way down. He caught it at a knot that they tied in the rope that would stop him two feet above the camera. What? And Cure Delay had to do this shot on his own because obviously his face is going to be two feet from the camera. Oh my god. So he lets go of the rope and then he grabbed the knot right when, when he gets down to two feet from the camera and then that guy jumped off a platform so that he's pulling the rope down, <laughs> lifting Cure Delay back up toward the the Holy outside shit. of the ship. So that's why he suddenly gets sucked yeah, back up. Yeah. And you think it's because the air is all getting yes. pulled out of this tube. And then he yanks the thing shut and then drops back down. This shot was insane. I they could only not, did it once. I couldn't yeah. figure it out. It looked so freaking good. It's crazy that this worked. But after, so after the guy jumps down, he he hops down so that it pulls... It pulls Bowman back up, and then he just let go of the rope after that, so that he would drop safely into the into the compartment, and that's how they did it. It's so crazy. It's so it's executed so perfectly. I mean, this is the kind of shit that you couldn't even do practically now because no. they just wouldn't let you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they they would let you. They would let they, they would let a, they would let a stunt guy do it, and then they would put his face on the person. Yeah. Oh Jesus. Dave puts on another helmet from the pod bay in case Hal tries any more murderous hijinks, and then he moves through the ship angrily. Suddenly, Hal wants to talk again, and it's Dave's turn not to respond. So the helmet he puts on... Yes. ...is not the ones... Uh, it's not from the pod bay, actually. Yeah. It's, right. It's from the... the it's from the airlock that he yeah, was just Yeah, because it's there's green, an emergency suit And the green one wasn't with the other right. ones. Right, yeah. Okay. It's weird, because the helmet he's wearing later is not green. It is, it's just the lighting is different. You're talking about when he's in the in the computer? Yeah, I mean when when yeah, when he's going to shut oh, Hal down. Yeah. His helmet becomes red. I think it's just cuz the room is lit up red but and then it looks red. But then when he goes into whatever the hell happens at the end of this movie, his helmet is red. Yes, that's well, true. But, but I think but I think he he puts on he, his He put on a proper helmet before he went out in the pod. Yeah, cuz cuz we don't know how much time has elapsed or you probably do from the novel, but Sure. But when we when we when we get to the point where he shuts down Hal, uh, yeah, between that and the final scene, there's years of oh, him stuff still has traveling. Happened. Yes. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, th I wasn't clear on yeah. that. I thought he was instantaneously no, no, no. Shit. Okay. <laughs> Suddenly, Hal wants to talk again, and it's Dave's turn not to respond. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. <laughs> Fuck I, you. I, I really like, like I'm entitled. <laughs> I'm entitled to a little consideration. <laughs> I don't think you are, Hal. 
I think maybe you're not. Bowman makes his way to the central computer mainframe and turns a key to unlock the logic memory center. Hal tries desperately to reason with him and convince Dave that Hal has recovered from his temporary lapse of judgment. I feel much better now. I really do. Look, Dave. I can see you're really upset about this. <laughs> and this line, like, that just kills me that he's like, look, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm okay now. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> just stop it. Stop what you do. Stop. Stop. Take a stress pill. Here. This is the stress pill. Take yeah. this machine. Why don't you take a stress pill? I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly. Take a stress pill and think things over. Um, it, it reminds me of in the House of the Future, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Mm. You're acting crazy, Marge. Why don't you take a stress pill? Bowman leaps into the heart of the computer and ignores Hal's pleading for him to stop. One by one, he ejects rectangular drives from the memory terminal, and Hal senses the disturbance. Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. This is the most I've ever identified with Hal 9000. <laughs> It seems like he's trying to guilt Dave into stopping, and Hal just killed his four crewmates, so that's not going to work so great. You don't identify with his murderous uh, outbreaks, too? No, okay. but, but the part where he's like, I can feel my brain dying in my head. <laughs> that That is relatable. So before Douglas Rain uh, came in to do the voice, the first voice was actually Martin Balsam, um, and Kubrick thought that he had a little bit too much emotion in his voice. Mm. Um, and so also, I got Ed Wynn. Well, he had a little <laughs> bit of like a New York accent too. So then he brought in Nigel Davenport to do it, but it was too British sounding. And so on set, when Kier DeLay is doing it, he's just doing it with the assistant director, Derek Cracknell. But <laughs> Kier does an impression of him on the on the Blu-ray commentary track where he, he basically sounds like Michael Caine. He's like, Dave, Dave, don't do that, Dave. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so funny. It's like that's the voice he was reacting to on set, and then they had Douglas Rain come in and record these lines after the fact. <laughs> so he gave the task to his assistant director, Derek Cracknell, uh, who sounded like this. This is what I heard. Dive, dive. Better take a stress pill, Dave. It's all like that. You know, it sounded a bit like, uh, you know, Michael Caine. <laughs> It just it makes me more impressed that he's such a good actor. <laughs> yeah, he did a great job. Hal suddenly reverts to demo mode and starts reading off his own origin story and specs. He was first switched on nine years ago in Urbana, Illinois, on January 12th, 1992. My instructor was Mr. Langley, and he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Dave says his final words to Hal. Yes. I'd like to hear it, Hal. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. 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 Give me your answer, do. I'm half crazy. You know, it's funny um, with all like the like the weird trend of like last year of uh, celebrating people's birthdays. Yeah. Like uh, 
uh, you know, like George Jetson is, you know, born. Oh, he was born this year. Yeah. 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 It was like, it was like, yeah, January 12th would have been a good, like, just a happy, you know, happy. They, they, um, on, on January 12th of 1997, which is Hal's birth date in the novel, they had a party in Urbana, Illinois. Oh, oh okay. To celebrate it. Um, and they invited Arthur C. Clarke and he came out. They invited Kubrick too. And he's like, but he was born in 1992. So fuck you guys. I'm not coming. <laughs> you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> cut, cut to 1992 Kubrick's there in Urbana yeah he's just Woo! sipping some champagne by himself <laughs> the song has its origins in the vaudeville circuit and was previously used in demonstrations of early computer capabilities such as the IBM 7094 in 1961 the first singing computer The song slows to a crawl as the last drive ejects, and suddenly a recording of Haywood Floyd is triggered on a nearby monitor. This is a pre-recorded briefing made prior to your departure, in which for security reasons of the highest importance has been known on board during the mission only by your HAL 9000 Now that you are in Jupiter's space and the entire crew is revived, it can be told to you. Yeah, so this message played early. Right. It, well, wasn't, that, it I, wasn't supposed to trigger until they got to Jupiter. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's. I guess that's why I was confused. So it's it seemed coincidental that it would play immediately after he shut the I think it's down. just because all the safeguards that were there to hide it had now been turned down. Okay, yeah, that, sure. Yeah. That was the secret he was protecting that he was so worried that somebody else was going to hear because like, did you hear about those rumors on the moon? Did you yeah. hear about anything like that? He's trying to make sure that Dave absolutely does not know anything. Yeah. And you know how some people have tells when they're playing poker, like sometimes they like wink or they like scratch a certain part of their body. Hal just fucking kills people. <laughs> That's his That's tell. His tell. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't in Jupiter space yet. No, no, they were far from it still. The recording tells Dave about TMA1, the Tycho Magnetic Anomaly. The sound we heard it make was a powerful radio transmission aimed in this direction. Bowman and his team were sent to locate the receiver of that transmission. Now we cut outside the Discovery 1 with a title that reads Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. So now he has turned off the computer, he's running it himself, and he traveled the rest of the way to Jupiter. So by himself, he's the only person carrying out the mission. He turned off the computer, he's doing it by himself. And when he gets there, he finds another monolith, a much larger monolith. Yeah. Presumably, that's the fastest way to get home because they've charted this course that will would you yes. know, slingshot you back around and come back around with the just bare minimum of fuel. Yeah. Doing, you know, my own Kerbal Space Program maneuvers of like, <laughs> it's like, I just need the bare minimum of fuel to get me there and yeah. back. The camera tilts down on a shot of Jupiter, and we see a glimpse of reflection in the blackness. We can barely make out the silhouette of another monolith floating in the space around it. This has come to be known as TMA2, according to the second film. It's actually two kilometers long, much bigger than any of the others. Discovery 1 is also here, having completed the mission without Hal's help or the desired crew of experts. Dave seems to chase the monolith through the blackness. He races after it in the last available pod, while the monolith floats into position in a row of aligned planets and moons of assorted sizes. Did all these guys, so these guys didn't know they were going to Jupiter? Nobody knew. In the book, the three hibernating scientists knew about it, but they were in hibernation so that they wouldn't talk about it on the way. Because I feel like it's weird that when we see those scientists at the beginning, 
they're you know they're talking about their family back home and stuff they're yeah. like, like are you're about to head to jupiter you're never going to see them again no it was supposed to be it was supposed to be a visit and a return trip mm. they didn't know that they were going to be stranded out here they didn't but know they were going to be killed by a yeah, robot they yeah. they thought that they were going to go out and investigate this thing and then come back and report on it but that's not what happened and dave has kind of given up on getting back and has decided that he's going to pursue this unknown in space whatever it is but wait how many years is the travel if they, I mean, obviously it's supposed to be a blink of the eye if they're in hibernation, but how long is the actual travel supposed to be? I don't know. I don't think they say in the film. It would depend on the thrust capabilities of the ship. Yeah. I guess you just come back and you're many years younger than your right. family. Who would be? The hibernating people? The hibernating yeah. people. Yeah, hibernating maybe. People. Yeah. yeah, it's like they got blipped. Suddenly all hell breaks loose. Technicolor spectrums unfold into camera in what has become known as the Stargate sequence. This footage makes use of a practical technique called slit-scan photography. All kinds of footage, paintings, electron microscope photography, crystal structures, were all fed into the process. The images would be projected on a flat surface, and the camera was slid past them with the shutter open, allowing streaks of color to persist and give the viewer a sense of a descent into the image. This was also intercut with footage of paints being dropped in a cloud tank shot in slow motion, as well as aerial footage of northern Scotland and Monument Valley, often presented with negative image effects through various color filters. But how did they do the one sequence with, like, the gems? There was, like, floating diamonds that were pulsing yeah. and then reshaping. They have to be models. Yeah. It's like... how. They, it was like I don't know how it's you do that. It's all kaleidoscopic photography. Yeah, because it's like it's like something out of Tron. It it looks yeah. very Tron because it's very flat colors, which would probably made it easier just have it as few colors on the sh- physical right. shape as possible. But just the way it moves and reconfigures itself, it's, it's so just... alien and, and unlike anything anyone had ever seen on film before. Dave's face is occasionally seen rumbling and shocked inside the spacesuit with flashes of light wrapped around him. Sometimes we see Dave's face as a still photo, just in shock, ah, screaming. Then we get an extreme close-up of his eye in various colors that seems to change every time he blinks. Galaxies bloom and erupt in the darkness. Colors swirl into an oily mess. Oceans of purple and green, deserts of blue and red. Another extreme close-up of Dave's eye. And finally, he's looking out the window of the pod into a well-appointed bedroom with lights installed in the floor. Suddenly, without having exited the pod, he is looking across the room at himself standing in his red spacesuit. He takes a few steps forward and walks through a bathroom to notice in his reflection that his skin is wrinkled now. Through another doorway, he spots an old man sitting at a table enjoying a meal, and when the old man turns in the chair, the other Dave is gone. The sound of his breathing stops because it was inside the spacesuit. Because he's the old man now, having found no younger self, Dave rises from his chair to inspect the bathroom, and then he returns to his meal and accidentally knocks a glass to the floor. While he inspects the shattered glass, he spots a bald elderly man in the bed, and on another cut, he is the oldest man, raising a frail hand to point to the giant monolith standing tall at the foot of the bed. We get a few inserts on the monolith, and then we cut back to Bowman. He is a space baby, the star child. A fetus with Dave Bowman's facial features floating in an ovoid sack above the bed. And then we push into the monolith to transition to the same baby floating in space looking down on Earth under a reprise of Also Sprock Zarathustra before we fade to black and the credits roll. The baby looked at you? <laughs> the baby looked at you? Yeah. I, th- I think the baby actually does look like Dave. It's it supposed to. <laughs> it's supposed to and it definitely does. It, it's in the it's lips. It's creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. 
It's Love it every time I see it. Yeah. And the best remake of this, the best parody. Which one? I think it's Bluey. <laughs> Does Bluey do a 2001 parody? They have a whole episode that's like this dream sequence. And there's a whole bunch of the this uh, space stuff kind of in here. Nice. Um, some differences from the book. Uh, in the book, the apes kill the leopard first with their weapons, not the tapers for food or each other. Um, Haywood Floyd seems terrified of space flight and nearly gets sick on his trip to the moon. The monoliths are 3 million years old, not 4 million years old. They travel to Saturn, not Jupiter, mostly because Saturn's rings were so hard to emulate. But Arthur C. Clarke has subsequently argued that Jupiter made way more sense scientifically, too, because its moons are more likely to support life than Saturn's are. Effects wizard Douglas Trumbull eventually perfected Saturn's rings and used them for silent running, which he directed himself. HAL stands for the Heuristically Programmed Algorithmic Computer, but a lot of people say that it's, oh, it's just the letters before each letter of IBM. H a l i b m but uh, coincidental. clark hates it when people say that <laughs> or he did for a long time and then he kind of made peace with it and was like you know what ibm likes that they're similar so i'm going to stop arguing and th- there is an ibm computer featured in the film anyway right because the tablet was ibm right that they're watching the uh, i don't know about the tablet but I'm, I'm i know one of the control panels on one of the spacecraft the tablet definitely has a little ibm logo in the bottom right corner and ibm obviously has their own supercomputer that talks called watson right that uh Oh, yeah. It was on Jeopardy a couple times. And don't forget about Deep Blue. Fuck Deep Blue. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. I like Deep Blue because he embarrassed Kasparov, and Kasparov's a dick. <laughs> In the book, Poole is killed removing the second failed AE-35 unit. So he's not replacing the one that didn't fail. He's killed removing one that did fail. Bowman never goes out after him in the book. The protocol dictates that he is to revive one of the hibernating scientists, but he decides to revive them all in case Hal is turning on him. To interrupt the plan, Hal opens the airlocks on purpose to vent all the ship's oxygen. Makes sense. Hal was born in 1997 in the book, 92 in the film. Interestingly, the second book is actually a sequel to the first film, not the first book, and retcons all the details of the first story to match Kubrick's film. So Mm. it mentions Jupiter, it mentions everything Mm -hmm. that happened in the movie, Right. is what precedes the second story. The second book is called 2010 Odyssey 2, which was adapted to film in 1984 by Peter Hyams as 2010 The Year We Make Contact, but it's a very faithful adaptation, so the events of the book and the film are basically the same. Also, a technical marvel, like yeah. the visual effects and things that they do with the, the gases moving around Jupiter. There's and- actually only one thing that bothers me about 2010 The Year We Make Contact, and it must be my own mistake about how things would work in space. But um, I'll I'll mention it when we get there. Hal's creator was established in the book as Chandra and gets a full name in the sequel, Siva Subramanian Chandra, which translates in Indian to Dear Priest of Shiva. In the film, though, he is inexplicably played by Bob Balaban. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) this should be an Indian scientist. Was Fisher Stevens busy? (laughs) (laughs) According to Bowman's official file, he disappeared on approach to the TMA-2 monolith, and his final transmission was the phrase, My God, it's full of stars. He is presumed dead. But he obviously doesn't say that in the first film. Right. Um, But I think it is in the first book. And so that's one thing that does get retained from the first book. Haywood Floyd, played now by Roy Scheider, is contacted by Dana Elkar, as the Russian space program equivalent, he informs Floyd that the Russians have a mission ready to locate and investigate Discovery 1. Their ship will be ready before NASA can get Discovery 2 in the air, so he's inviting Americans along to locate and inspect the ship because he thinks 
you know, the Americans made it. They know it better. Yeah. It would make sense for us to cooperate on this mission. Also, better to send Americans to die on the ghost <laughs> ship than... Yeah, to- <laughs> exactly. Floyd intends to go himself since he sent the previous mission, and he will bring along the other responsible party, Hal's inventor, Dr. Chandra, played by Bob Balaban. Chandra brings with him his latest invention, the Sal 9000 computer system, voiced by Candace Bergen. <laughs> Cosmonauts on board include Helen Mirren and Elia Baskin. When they get close to Jupiter's ice moon, Europa sends several hostile signals to warn them away. They find Discovery 1 and work their way inside to a perfect recreation of the film's ship. It's weirdly dusty inside for a spaceship, though. I don't understand why it's, like, dusty and cobwebbed inside. So, uh, well, hold Space on. spiders. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, wa- I wanted to get back to um, uh, Europa real quick. Yeah. Because the, the, uh, I'm very familiar with 2061. Okay, yeah. And, and they talk about something that happens in 2010 where they wake up Floyd from his sleep and say, hey, there's something going on in Europa. Right. Um, And in the movie, we don't really get what that is. But in 2061, they explain what it was. It's like a lightning ball shooting off of the planet. Well, they they explain that the Chinese had landed a craft. Right. But that's that's not included at all in the 2010. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or even, I think, in the 2010 book, they don't mention that. But in 2061, they sort of retcon it. Yeah. But yeah, so there, since there were three, at the time there were three spacefaring nations, mm-hmm. China sent a mission also and got too close to Europa and were destroyed, which is sort of like, in, in the movie they're just getting a warning. They right. get a warning shot on purpose, but in the in the original 2061 book, it's literally, we blew up a ship to warn you. That was your warning. They find Discovery 1 and work their way inside to a perfect recreation of this film's ship. It's weirdly dusty inside for a spaceship, though. So um, what you're probably seeing as dust is more than likely... Ice? Ice, yeah. So it's frozen inside? Yeah, like it's... it. All the moisture in the air has condensed into there crystals. There shouldn't be air in it, right? Um, well, well, I guess... Bowman no, it was probably, still sealed, yeah. Yeah, Bowen, Bro- Bowen probably left it in case he needed to come back to yeah. it. Yeah. But we also don't know how long, like, the air filtration system was running or if it broke down and got smoky. Like, I mean, the ship was just left on yeah. for a long time. It just seems like it should have been hermetically sealed. There shouldn't yeah. be anything moving around in here. But um, And if there's no humans, then what is this dust coming from? Is it just breaking off of machines randomly? It's only been nine years. Right. So my guess is that what we're probably seeing is ice crystals. Okay. That's my guess. The, yeah. the, the outside. They do say it's really cold in there when they get. Yeah. I would have liked to see somebody slip on them or something. To Whoopsie. This is ice. Um, uh, I love the scene where uh, Lithgow and Baskin are looking and he's like having him open the helmet. To, yeah. Like to see if the air is still breathable. Yeah. Um, he's just watching his face really closely. Like I'm going to pull this lid down if your face starts to get sucked out of your seat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, I love the exterior stuff with it because uh, the whole thing's covered in sulfur. Yeah. Because uh, the eruptions on Io are so violent that that I was actually getting smaller right because debris is constantly just ejecting from it and, and going off in the space that's how violent the volcanoes are Dr. Chandra is entrusted with reinstalling all of Hal's hard drives which are in position exactly as Dave left them and I love that when he goes into mm. the computer and you can see all the same rectangles are popped up out of the machine but but I love how he's trying to figure out which one's the faulty one and he says ah fuck it Floyd is visited by the ghost of Bowman who tells him something wonderful will happen in two days. It's like a sort of like otherworldly presence, uh, uh, maybe like a hologram or something, some sort of alien technology that allows Bowman to show up and talk to Haywood. And it's played by Cure Delay again. 
War breaks out on Earth between the U.S. and Russia, and a cloud begins to blot out the surface of Jupiter. They zoom into it with a camera and determine that it's made of 355,000 monoliths, all swirling around in a big ball and multiplying on their own. The side of Jupiter begins to implode on itself. Dr. Chandra is hesitant to admit the potential danger to Hal because they require Hal to make the sacrifice play while they steal the rest of Discovery One's fuel to retreat. Ultimately, he tells Hal the truth, and Hal understands. Ghost Dave orders Hal to broadcast a message to Earth. It is the most important message you have ever sent. I want you to keep repeating it as many times as possible. What is going to happen, Dave? Something wonderful. Jupiter collapses into a second sun, and the shockwave from Jupiter's eruption destroys Discovery 1 and nearly destroys the Russian vessel, Leonov, because it's named after the dissident. Right. Yeah, because I thought you were going to call it the Titov. <laughs> we so, changed yeah, we it changed with... it a month ago. But a shockwave shouldn't be able to move through a vacuum anyway, should it? Um, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I don't think it should. There's, there's no medium for it to move through. Space isn't a perfect vacuum. I think it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's I no mean, uh, it's no Bissell. I mean, there's there's probably a lot of matter that's being created and thrown out from this explosion. Yeah, that's probably true. There probably is some some actual material being tossed off by this. The message is not revealed until the final moments of the film. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Attempt no landing there. Use them together. Use them in peace. The war is stopped immediately by this message, and in the novel's epilogue, we jump forward to 20,001 and find the species encountered on Europa having evolved to the Dawn of Man stage of their civilization. Ignoring Bowman's warning, many attempts have been made to land on Europa, and all were destroyed on approach. Now we move on to the third book, 2061, Odyssey 3. Floyd is back for another trip, having aged a bit in reverse, a side effect of the hibernation technology. He's technically 103, and he's invited on a ship called Universe for the first ever trip to the surface of Halley's Comet. So this is just a character you know brought to a thing in space that you've heard of. <laughs> but there's really not a lot of story here. Yeah. Um, his grandson, Chris II, is serving on a spacecraft called Galaxy, which is set to do a flyby of Europa. Not to land there, because mm -hmm. we're not supposed to land there, but a flight attendant on the galaxy hijacks the plane and intentionally crashes it into Europa against Bowman and Hal's warnings in the second film. On Europa, they find an early form of intelligent life. The universe, the spacecraft, <laughs> leaves Halley to rescue the crew of the galaxy and remove them from Europa without tainting the evolutionary progress of the moon's inhabitants. An incorporeal copy of Floyd joins the immortal space ghosts of Bowman and Hal, and they talk about the Europans. There was previously life on Jupiter, but an intelligence from beyond the galaxy chose the Europans for ascendance to an intelligent species and sacrificed the less promising Jovian species by turning their planet into a sun for Europa. <laughs> just, just like, that's genocide, right? Yeah. That's yeah. space genocide? They gotta make room for the new hyperspace bypass. Right, exactly. <laughs> The Europans will be similarly compared to humans in about a thousand years, and again, one or the other will be chosen for further evolution, and the other will be destroyed. There's also, like, a giant diamond? Right, in the what the core of the, the, the planet, yeah. The story cuts forward to 3001 at the end, just as the monolith awakens again to decide between the Europans and the humans. Then we have the last book, 3001 The Final Odyssey. Because Floyd, Bowman, and Hal are obviously gone by now, the book resurrects the only other character from the first film, Frank Poole, who Dave left floating out into the recesses of space. He was discovered a thousand years later 
beyond the edge of the galaxy, and because his body froze so quickly, he was actually able to be resurrected by future science and introduced to our insane future. Some things make sense, like space elevators, a ring space station around the planet Earth, and full-dive VR technology. Other things make no fucking sense, like future society using resurrected velociraptors to babysit their children. <laughs> what? <laughs> it turns out they're just really good at it. <laughs> I, I imagine these are the smaller, more accurate scale so. velociraptors, not the Jurassic yeah. Park. <laughs> just, just the kids are just hiding in kitchens. <laughs> So yeah. That's why it works so yeah. well, yeah, honestly. They don't get I into trouble. Back, everything's clean except <laughs> the pots and pans are on the floor. <laughs> TMA-1 from the moon is brought down to Earth and installed in front of the United Nations building, which seems... Like, Odd. Well, perfect. Like, why would you do that? Like, well, but also, that's what the United Nations building is shaped like. Yeah, but it also feels like so rude to the aliens that's like oh we took your really important thing that you made and we just like made it a lawn decoration <laughs> yeah yeah the british museum uh, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> tma zero from the dawn of man sequence is discovered on earth in africa pool is actually invited to europa the first human welcomed by the moon where he is met by the voices of dave bowman and hal who have merged into one being known as halman <laughs> Delicious that's real that's a real thing the official ruling of the monoliths has been handed down, and humanity is a failure of a species. The Europans <laughs> are to inherit you that, the universe. <laughs> yeah. Smart aliens. Yeah. It didn't take <laughs> a thousand years to figure that out. Poole concocts a plan to infect the monolith with a computer virus by uploading it to Halman, who resides within it. The ending is, of course, borrowed for the finale of Independence Day, and Arthur Clarke puts them on blast in the novel's audiobook <laughs> epilogue. <laughs> like oh cool i guess i wrote independence day you're welcome <laughs> the humans land on well, europa hey i mean to be fair war of the worlds did that first it just wasn't a computer virus right. that's what he thinks is was the interesting that using a trojan horse computer virus to kill aliens was was unique that was and it was intentional it wasn't like by coincidence they caught our viruses the humans land on europa without fear of reprisal from the monoliths and establish peaceful contact with the europans the end of that series yeah. <laughs> of books. Um, yeah, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I love it. I love it. I think I saw it for the first time uh, in high school, and then I got really obsessed with it in college and just watched it over and over and over again. And then anytime it was screening anywhere, I would go and see it. I saw it in the Cinerama Dome, which yeah. I'm very happy as I did. It, as it was intended. Yeah. Um, and uh, because I was one of the first hundred people in line, I got the the first Blu-ray that came out for it. Nice. Um and uh, that was very exciting um, because I just love that movie and I can put it on anytime and just just soak it in. Yeah. I think I, I feel like I've only seen it once or twice before this viewing. Um, my recollection of it was very different, I think, than this viewing of it because, you know, I. There is very little story to this sure. movie. In you know, it's two and a half hours worth of you know sound and visual you know paintings here for yeah. you to, to absorb. But the story is minimal, and so in my head, you know, the apes are on screen for like thirty seconds. He, you know, they have conversations with Hal, and then there's this weird sequence at the end. You know, and and that's like ten minutes worth of footage that was in my head. This time around, I was like, holy crap, this. Ape scenes like twenty five minutes long. It's really long, <laughs> and so and so is the Stargate sequence. And so it is that yeah. one is too. And I'm just like, oh, that one was a funny moment because 
you know how when you um, don't have subtitles and it and it goes to like download open titles. Yeah. Oh right. Um, <laughs> it well, said that with thirty minutes. There's left in the thirty movie. minutes left in the movie, <laughs> and usually when the last of the subtitles are read, it's like, oh, you know, this was sponsored by so and so, or you know, it's some, some some little ad at the end, you know, with a website link or something like that. I'm don't like, believe oh my God, the there's, Illuminati. There's thirty minutes of this movie left, and that was the last word that was going to be spoken. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because Haywood Floyd also gets the first words in the movie, so he's. He's the first and last word in the movie because he's the first person to talk and they play that recording of him at the end. I think I appreciate it a lot more this time around. Um, it's still, I, I think it's an amazing movie. I, and I don't want to downplay that at all in any way. But it is incredibly long. Yeah. With a very small amount of story to it. And, I, and I think what's interesting, though, is, is how deliberate every shot is. Like, even well, even though it is long, that, that I feel like... Yes and not- no. Like, I agree that everything is done incredibly intentionally. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I'm kind of of the the school of every scene should be moving your story forward. And that's not the case in this. But I think that's because... I feel like it is. Because it's a different... It's an art form. Like, I don't really think about this as a film. Yeah. It's just a piece of art. And you experience those things differently. You know what I haven't done yet, but someone suggested, and I did this with Raiders before we talked about it, was watching the movie because Soderbergh does, you know, his own re-edits of things. Mm -hmm. um, And he has a version of Raiders on his website that you can watch that's in black and white. Right. With no sound, just a score for the whole thing. And I feel like there's no part of 2001 that doesn't work as a silent film. Because you get, you understand that Hal is not doing what he wants him to do when he's standing there holding a body and he's saying something and the computer does nothing in response. And it's like, obviously he's asking to be let in and the computer's not doing it. And there's no part of this movie that you don't, you wouldn't comprehend visually. But what has always blown me away about this movie is that I've seen sci-fi movies from the 60s. Yeah. And they look like garbage. Yeah. All of them. Sci-fi movies from the 70s look like garbage. Compared to to this. even comprehend that this could exist, I think is 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 masterful. Yeah, but like this movie could come out today, and people would still be impressed by it. Yeah, and it came out over fifty years ago. Right, that's crazy. I, I think like the next time you would see a spectacle like this, a visual effects wouldn't be till Star Wars in seventy seven. Yeah. Which was in a large part inspired by the success of this film. Mm. There's so many sci-fi filmmakers that have all said 2001 was like, it opened their minds. They were like, I didn't realize you could do this, this, and that. And 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 it completely changed the game into in what these things could look like and, and the scope of a sci-fi film. This was the, obviously the highest budgeted sci-fi film at the time. Mm. And Star Wars was probably the next one to surpass the budget of this film um, because... For the most part, people didn't think of those movies as making money that way. People didn't take the the genre seriously. And then Kubrick made the best science fiction film of all time, which I still think today is the best science fiction movie ever made. You know what actually surprises me, though, is how successful and revered it generally is by the general public. Now, I know that people appreciate art and film history and, you know, those types of things are going to love this movie. But who's what average citizen sits through two and a half hours of mostly just pretty pictures? You know what? It's probably better remembered now than it was when it came out because, like I said, it did not make a lot of money right away, and the critics didn't like it. The critics were bored. A lot of people walked out at the intermission, mm. um, which is like true to form with most 
a lot of Kubrick. Like I feel like people like, are, are putting their opinions of of the way Kubrick talks about himself and. Gary Lockwood has said that every time he did the press circuit, he's like, this is the best sci-fi movie of all time that we made. And people were like, well, this guy's really full of himself. He seems like an asshole. And it's like, but what if it is? What if it just mm-hmm. is and he's right? Yeah. Because it still is. <laughs> uh, I also like came to know this film uh, in high school. Yeah. And uh, also very much had... Uh, I sent you guys a link <laughs> to yeah. a video I <laughs> made. Reconstructions. Yeah, well, where I was, I was in like the 90s 3D build engine level design. And I was like, I'm going to put a secret Easter egg from 2001 A Space Odyssey in my level. Um, I got my monolith here on yeah. the wall. Uh, yeah, like the monolith. And and it's still like the monolith is still like a pop culture. Um, I remember like finding there's there's a, a secret monolith in the uh, game Trespasser, which is a Jurassic Park spinoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you go way, way off the island. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you can go off map and there it is. It's like it's the movie has had such a huge cultural impact. It's parodied. Yeah. Like, all over the place. Uh, you know, like anytime you have like an, a rogue AI, it's what's like it, like all the conversations that we're having these days about AI. Almost every article has a picture of how. Like, right. I mean, this, this, yeah. this, that's the And the Demon model. Seed is obviously like a direct child of yeah. this movie. Mm-hmm. But uh I I've just was super fascinated with it. Um and uh I never tire I never tire of watching it. Like I mean uh I'm not saying I want to rush out and watch it every day, but like when we were when we you know, I, I think I've watched it within the last year because I showed it to my niece. Yeah. Um but what did she like, think of it? She really she she said she really liked it, and she she actually wanted to watch it again when I was when I said I had to watch yeah. it. And we couldn't we couldn't work it out with our schedules. You can still watch it whenever you want. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, but uh, she said she really liked it, and she she thought she thinks about it all the time, and and I think that that's great. I think that 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 this movie because it's because I think because it doesn't have a story, you can you can impart your own kind of ideas and thoughts and just kind of let it wash over you and go, what did you think of this? Yeah. Because there are no wrong answers. Like, like, well, what does it mean? It's like, you don't, we don't know what it means. But at the same time, I feel like people talk about this movie like it's very highbrow and like difficult to understand or difficult to comprehend like the theories of it. And I feel like it's really not. Like, I feel like you could show this to a kid and he would understand, well, they didn't have weapons in that scene. And then they saw this big thing. And then the very next scene, he's using a weapon and he realizes that he can fight. Like you're, you're seeing very basically pantomimed out what's happening from moment to moment throughout the story. And there's no part of it. That's like a Supreme mystery. All of it is just like, it's, it's actually a very straightforward story. I, I would just, I would agree with it all the way up until the end sequence. I think that the end sequence and what exactly Uh, is happening there is, is very open to interpretation. Here is how I have interpreted it. And, uh, and then I'll tell you how the book's, uh, sort of uh, have, because have spelled it out. I would say that you know the the previous times that I'd seen this movie, I'm just like I just don't I just don't know what's happening at well, the end. Well, it's called the Stargate sequence because he's literally being transported somewhere. Mm. He's being taken to the species that put these monoliths in place. Um, and so when he gets where he's being sent, is he in a zoo? Is he yes, living his it's life a human out? Zoo. It's okay. a human zoo, and he's living his life out. That's exactly what's happening. So. The way Kubrick decided to show time progressing, which was actually Cure Delay's suggestion, and Kubrick went with it, was to show him at different stages of his life, but because 
he's in like a new sort of it's not it's not a regular three-dimensional world like we know it's something beyond that it's tralfamadorian in nature where time starts to not make sense and you and you just kind of you you pick up and act out a random scene of your life and then you move to another timeline and you act out a random scene of that so he's he's going through his life in a series of like vignettes that seem disconnected to us because of we can't comprehend how time works in this other well universe. yeah i mean that's you know in theory if we were compre- comprehending a, a, a fourth dimension all time was existing at once and right. we we don't we it does not pass through us nor do we pass through it you know it it, it is all at once but how do you represent that in a movie and yeah. i guess this is this it. is the closest thing you yeah. could do to that <laughs> but they also so him turning into the baby at the end was him being reborn obviously as what Nietzsche called in also Sprock Zarathustra the the Ubermensch. So he he's like the next evolution of human. He's he's being changed again by another contact with these beacons and being sent back to Earth to fix them. Which we kind of drop that because Bowman is not involved on, in earthly mm. happenings moving forward in any of the books. But in the first book, the implication is that his his arrival beyond the Earth atmosphere is actually like puts an end to the tensions between Russia and the U S um, and it, and it like they literally like disable the nuclear satellites and, and earth begins to resume a sort of uh, formal permanent peace. Um, but that's not really illustrated in the film. We just see him being returned to the planet by whatever force transformed mm. him into this Ubermensch thing. And that's the end. I love it. Big thumbs up. Oh yeah. It's a thumbs up. Yeah, for sure. A thumbs up. Required viewing. Yes, absolutely. The writer-director here was Stanley Kubrick. He started strong, directing Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing and Paths of Glory. He follows that up with a celebrated string of instant classics, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, This, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. And he worked a lot on AI before Spielberg took it over. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't pin that on Kubrick because uh, it's <laughs> not so great. Um, he's widely considered to be the greatest film director of all time, and the best directors of today all wish that they were Stanley Kubrick. Um, the writer and novelist was Arthur C. Clarke. He is a celebrated science fiction author with weirdly few feature film adaptations of his work. In fact, just this film and its sequel, the 2010 The Year We Make Contact, there's no other feature films made from Arthur C. Clarke works, but there's really? a lot of TV specials and stuff like that. And supposedly Denny Villeneuve's next movie is Rendezvous with Rama which is another Arthur C. Clarke story that's what he'll be doing after Dune 2 mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if that's like officially set in stone or if that's just like um, something that thinking. he's announced that he would like to do but I'll, I'll watch anything he makes that sounds great Tom Hanks once held the rights to the adaptations of the two later films but neither obviously came to fruition because there's really not enough story there even 2001 fans I think would be disappointed yeah. by the events of of either of those even if you saw a velociraptor babysitting somebody <laughs> I, I think what you would have to do is just take the films of 2001 and 2010 and make your own thing and, and make your own thing yeah. from that you, you get uh you get the the doctor sleep guy to come back and yeah and Mike Flanagan. <laughs> yeah he can fix it um Clark has also written segments of anthology series Tales of Tomorrow and the mid-80s Twilight Zone. The cinematographer here was Jeffrey Unsworth. Uh, he makes beautiful things. 
Uh, before this, he lit Titanic disaster film A Night to Remember, Genghis Khan, and Othello. After this, he lights Cabaret, Zardoz, Murder on the Orient Express, Superman, Tess, and Superman 2. As we mentioned in our test review, he was awarded a posthumous Oscar for his work lighting that film. Unsworth was awarded a BAFTA for his work on this film and has since claimed that most of the work was actually Kubrick's, who just told him where to put lights for every shot until he quit the production in protest. <laughs> the job was taken up by cinematographer John Alcott, who would continue working with Kubrick for most of their careers, and whose work we've seen so far in The Shining, Terror Train, and Fort Apache the Bronx. The editor here was Ray Lovejoy, this was his first editing credit. Can you fucking imagine? What? <laughs> this is the first thing that you cut, and you're like, this is also the best thing I'll ever cut. Oh. Well, especially and with... they let me leave it at two and a half hours. Yeah. Nobody's going to let you leave uh, it. I that guarantee long. you it was an Unsworth situation, though, where Kubrick is like, no, not that frame. That frame. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, uh, when you have a 200 to 1 footage ratio. Yeah, <laughs> you got to be very picky. Uh, after this, he cuts The Shining, Crawl, Eleni, Aliens, Batman, Year of the Comet, and Monkey Trouble, among others. Cure Delay was Dr. Dave Bowman. Before this, he was Private Doll in The Thin Red Line and Stephen Lake in Bunny Lake is Missing. He was Kubrick's top choice for the part. He's also Peter in Black Christmas, and he returns as Dave Bowman for a cameo in 2010, The Year We Make Contact. More recently, he was Fleet Admiral Hood on the Halo TV series. He's still around. Gary Lockwood played Dr. Frank Poole. The part was once considered for bigger names like James Coburn, Rod Taylor, and George Hamilton. Not much else I recognize from Lockwood, but he was also Grant in MacGyver episode Mask of the Wolf. He's one of the two grave robber guys mm. that are trying to steal the Native American character. William Sylvester played Dr. Haywood R. Floyd. Before this, he was in Man in the Dark, Devil Doll, and he's a Pentagon official in You Only Live Twice. After this, he's Mr. Weldman in Busting, a nuclear reporter in Heaven Can Wait, and we've seen him so far as a TV commentator in First Family. Daniel Richter played Moonwatcher, uh, who is not, his name is not mentioned in the film, but that's the leader of the armed ape tribe. His only other acting credit was in something called The Revolutionary in 1970, but he was a professional mime, and most of the apes were members of a troupe that he ran. Leonard Rossiter played Dr. Andrei Smyslov. That's one of the people that uh, Floyd meets at the airport. We just saw him recently as Mr. Sourbury, the drunk undertaker in Oliver. He's also Captain Quinn in Barry Lyndon. Margaret Tizak played Elena. She's a conspirator in A Clockwork Orange. Robert Beatty played Dr. Ralph Halverson. That's one of the other men at the briefing on the moon. Before this, he was Oberst Matson in The Death Ray of Dr. Mabuse. After this, he shows up in Where Eagles Dare, Pink Panther Strikes Again, and Superman's 3 and 4. In the third, he plays a tanker captain. And in the fourth one, he's the U.S. president. Yeah. He also voices the left door knocker in Labyrinth. <laughs> so that's the one who <laughs> always tells the truth? I don't know. Sean Sullivan played Dr. Bill Michaels. He was Herb Smith in The Dead Zone. We just saw him as Tattered Man in Silence of the North, and before that as Buddy in Atlantic City. Douglas Rain was HAL 9000, the voice. Uh, sorry, what did you say Sean Sullivan's character name was? Herb Smith in The Dead Zone. Oh, Bill Michaels? Dr. Uh, Bill Michaels? Wikipedia has Roy Michaels. Hang on. Oh, weird. IMDb says Dr. Bill Michaels. I copied and pasted. Oh, well, then there it is. Very, very interesting. Herb Smith in The Dead Zone. We just saw him as Tattered Man in Silence of the North and before that as Buddy in Atlantic City. Douglas Rain is the voice of HAL 9000. He recorded his part for the film in less than 10 hours in 1967. Kubrick first recorded actor Martin Balsam for the part and felt that his performance was too emotionally charged. Uh, Rain doesn't have a lot of credits, actually, but he reprises the role in 2010 and he will for sure be the voice of my future computer software 
ages and ages hence when I get to pick the voice of my personal companion computer. Frank Miller played Mission Controller. Not that Frank Miller. He played a pilot in MacGyver episode The Heist. He's also one of Scrimshaw's henchmen in Inner Space. Bill Weston was an astronaut. He's also in Moon Zero Two, the Long Good Friday, and we saw him last as a German soldier in Raiders. Later, he shows up in Crawl as Menno and in Living Daylights as Bladen Butler. Ed Bishop plays Ares 1B Lunar Shuttle Captain. He was Harding in Saturn 3, which I think is the guy who gets killed at the beginning, like sliced into a bunch of pieces. Yeah, there's not that many people in Saturn 3. Yeah, there's only like four people with lines in that movie. Glenn Beck played another astronaut. He was Lieutenant Kivel in Dr. Strangelove. Alan Gifford played Poole's father. He was Mr. Eldridge in Phase 4, and he's back later this season as a judge in Ragtime. Anne Gillis was Poole's mother. This was her last credit, but she only passed away in 2018. She was Mary Lou as a child in The Great Zigfield. Becky Thatcher in the 1938 Tom Sawyer. Annie in the 1938 Little Orphan Annie. Anthony Jackson plays Ape. He was a devil on Storyteller. And the four guards in labyrinth s newton anderson played a young man he was landers in the wicker man and samuel in moonraker vivian kubrick played squirt that's the name of floyd's daughter in the film she is obviously the daughter of stanley she's a magic show spectator in barry linden a smoking guest in the shining and a camera operator at a mass grave in full metal jacket she also directed and conducted interviews on making the shining an episode of documentary series arena Roy Lansford played scientist at TMA1 briefing. He was Sir Thomas Spivey in Murder by Decree. And finally, Ivor Powell was V.F. Kaminsky. Kaminsky is one of the scientists that's in hibernation, right? Um, I'm, I think so. Uh, he was a producer on Alien and Blade Runner. I think that's everything for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Thanks again to Carlos for their generous contribution to the show. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you chose. We leave you now with a trailer for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. started the whole thing. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides. And what's more, it seems to have been deliberately buried. A shrieking monolith, deliberately buried by an alien intelligence, starts man on a mission half a billion miles into space. With three of its five crew asleep in hibernation, spacecraft Discovery One voyages towards Jupiter. Controlling the mission is a talking computer known as HAL. HAL, you're the brain and central nervous system of the ship. Does this ever cause you any lack of confidence? Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. No 9,000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. In the first year of the 21st century, there is strange and wondrous beauty, startling experiences that jolt and mystify, and the danger of complete 
obliteration. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. And now, your journey is just beginning.